Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8, we're going through the book of Revelation here in Calvary Chapel, and uh, uh, chapter by chapter, and uh, I think there was a couple times I might have done two chapters, but we're just kind of working our way through it, and uh, I think there's a lot a lot to be learned in chapter 8 there, uh, as we're looking at this morning. Uh, in chapter 6, to kind of set the stage here a little bit, in chapter 6 you recall that uh, there was a scroll that the Father had in his hands, and, and, and the Lamb of God, we know that to be Jesus, came and took the scroll out of the, out of the, uh, uh, out of the Father's hands, and there were seven seals on the scroll. And he started removing the seals from the scroll. And there were six seals that were opened in chapter 6. And then, you know, with bated breath, we're waiting for, the, for him to remove the seventh seal to see what's inside of this scroll. And we get to chapter 7, and now there's this parenthetical information. It's other information that the Lord wanted us to know in, in chapter 7. And now, this morning, we're here at chapter 8, and finally, we see the opening of the seventh seal. It's like, finally, it's done, it's finished, only to discover that the opening of the seventh seal now leads to seven trumpets. And that's in chapter 8. And six uh, trumpets are blasted in chapters 8 and 9. And then we get to chapters 10 before the seventh trumpet is blown. In chapters 10 and 11, we have more parenthetical information, more things that the Holy Spirit wants us to know uh, in addition to what's going on. And then finally we get at the end of chapter 11, the blasting of the seventh trumpet. And it's like, okay, finally, but that leads to seven bowl judgments but not before some more parenthetical information in chapters 12 through 15. Then we see the six bowls poured out in chapter 16, and there's, believe it or not, there's even parenthetical information following that, just a couple verses in chapter 16, and then finally the pouring out of the seventh bowl. And you know, a lot of commentators, you can, go to the, you can get about five commentators and get about six different opinions about what does all this mean, and it can get so confusing I like what J. Vernon McGee says. He says, if the structure of the book is followed, it will prevent you from going off into fanaticism and sensationalism. Well, what's the structure of the book? Jesus gave it to us in chapters 1, verse 19. He told John, he said, John, write the things which you have seen. That was chapter 1. What did John see? He saw the, Jesus in his resurrected glory in heaven. And then he's told, write the things which are. Those are chapters 2 and 3. That's the letters to the seven churches. Describing the, the, the literal seven churches that were existing in John's day, but also, also speaking of churches and to the churches, even to our church in this day, down through the ages. And then finally, write the things that will take place after this. After what? After the church age, which is chapters 4 through 22. If you follow that structure, you won't get confused because you can you start reading and go like, wait a minute, I, what happened to the seventh trumpet? And what happened to the seventh bowl? And we can get so confused. But if you follow the structure, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be all right. One thing I want to bring up too it's good to remind ourselves that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It's not just the revelation of the future. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the reason why I bring that up is because in chapter 8, in the midst of all these things that we're going to be looking at, what I want to focus on today is the heart of Jesus. Because even in the things that take place that we're going to be looking at this morning, we're going to see God's heart in this. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to see his patience. We're going to see his faithfulness. And we're going to see his restraint. So, go and if you have your Bibles there, verse 1. We'll read it together. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, I've heard it said, and I don't know it's true, but someone says this is proof that there won't be women in heaven. Now, I do not believe it, okay? I don't believe it. I just, I don't stick with that. And uh, only half of you thought that was funny. But um, anyways, uh, it's not true. I, I, I don't think so. Seriously, though, what makes this silence significant? I want you to kind of, kind of think back here a little bit as we've been going through the chapters. In chapter 4, of course, John's seeing the vision of heaven. He's up in heaven, vision, seeing this. It's not even a vision. He's there. There's 24 elders. We talked about that representing the church. There's 24 elders around the throne. And from the throne in chapters 4, there's, there's lightnings, there's thunderings, there's voices. There's, there's, there's this activity taking place. There's four living creatures. We looked at that as well. The Bible says in chapter 4, they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And whenever those living creatures, whenever they give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders, they start worshiping. It's contagious and they fall down. And it says they throw their crowns down before him. They saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. That's in chapter four. Then in chapter five, John says this. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them, and I'm thinking he's talking about the, the angels, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a lot, okay? Innumerable. Un, you can't even count them, however. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And chapter 5 goes on to say, um, every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and such as are in the sea, all, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the uh, sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, chapters uh, 7, last week we looked at that. John sees this great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And we find out that these are those who came out of the tribulation. They're the tribulation saints that are being uh, martyred for their, voice, for their faith. And they themselves are crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You put all that together and you kind of go, Wow, there must be a lot of noise going on in heaven. And there is a lot of noise, a lot of activity a lot of worship. You think of how many people there are, and then suddenly there's silence. <coughs> I 
it seems awkward, right? You know what I mean? If you're like if you're on TV and you're you're narrating something, you're interviewing or you're a pastor up here speaking, silence all of a sudden it's like that's kind of awkward. It got quiet all of a sudden. You may think, you know what? I can be quiet for 30 minutes. In fact, I can be quiet for a bunch of hours in the car. You can ask Teresa when we drive somewhere. I'm usually not talking, you know, and and then uh but, you know, think about this. A sea of people that you can't even count how many there are. All this noise, all these creatures, and suddenly there's silence. All heaven is silence for about 30 minutes. This is significant. So why the pause? Why the silence? I like what Isaiah 28:21 says. This is speaking about God's judgment. It says, For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and to bring to pass his act, his unusual act. His unusual act. The King James Version says his strange work. What is this speaking about? This is something that's foreign to God's nature bringing about judgment. It's foreign to his nature. Listen, Lamentations 3, 33 and 34 says this, For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth. God's not willing to afflict people. That's the, he doesn't take pleasure in that. In fact, in Ezekiel 33, 11, Jesus says, or God says this, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. In the New Testament, Peter put it this way. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy 2.4, speaking about the Lord Jesus as who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So why the pause? I think this is Why? I think we're seeing right now God's reluctance to pronounce judgment. We're seeing his heart of patience and mercy. He doesn't, he doesn't take pleasure in, in, in afflicting the earth and afflicting people. But he has to judge. You see, he wouldn't be a righteous God if he didn't judge. But that's not his heart. That's his strange work. His heart is to redeem mankind, not to condemn them. And it seems like all heaven senses this and they're hushed because now is not a time for praise and worship. Now it's just, wow, this is serious. And so this 30 minutes of silence, it literally is the lull before the storm. Zechariah 2.13, be silent all flesh before the Lord for he is aroused from his holy habitation. And so we get to verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now here's where people tend to get confused. Uh, First of all, the seven angels. It's not to be confused with the seven spirits before the throne of God. 
These are angels of prominence that are standing before the presence of God. We don't know their names, although we could think possibly one of them might be Gabriel. Because when he announced the birth of Jesus uh, to Mary in Luke 1 verse 19, he says, I'm one of the angels. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. So it could have been Gabriel. Uh, the the uh, Apocrypha gives the names of the other angels, but that, you know, we don't know. But these are angels of prominence. And they're given seven trumpets. Now, trumpets are significant in Old Testament scriptures. Remember, this is a Jewish audience that is reading these letter, this, this letter. So they would understand about the trumpets. In the Old Testament scriptures, trumpets were used for public assembly, to draw people together. They were used to direct soldiers in war. They signaled important events on the Jewish calendar, such as the first of the month. In fact, almost every important event the trumpets were blasted for. It was used at Mount Sinai when the law was given. So there's a lot of, a lot of significance to these trumpets. But these seven trumpets, they, they can, you can be confused. They're not the trumpet of God. Okay, First Thessalonians 4.16, they're not that trumpet. It's not the last trump Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, because I want you to think about this for a moment. Those two verses that I talked, quoted, verse Thess- Thessalonians 4, 16, and 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, the trumpet of God and the last trump, the purpose of sounding those trumpets in those verses is the rising up of the dead uh, in Christ and the harpazo, the uh, catching up. We call it, the blessing, uh, the blessed hope, the rapture of the church. That's the purpose between those two trumpets. These are seven trumpets. They're sounded by angels. The last trump and the trumpet of God is basically the voice of Jesus. His voice is as an archangel and as a trumpet. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 10. These seven trumpets have nothing to do with catching up of the church. These have everything to do with God's judgment on the wicked left on the earth. So there's a difference in purpose in these trumpets. So don't get confused by that. Verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So not only these seven angels, but now there's this another angel described. And so some people say, well, this is Jesus. And those that say that this is Jesus, this other angel, they say, well, the role of this angel is unique. It's like the role of the high priest under the old covenant. See, this angel acts as a mediator. He's transmitting prayers of the the saints to God on the throne. And in 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, for there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So a lot of people say, well, this angel, this other angel is Jesus. In fact, Jesus appears in the Old Testament occasionally. He's described as the angel of the Lord. So there are people say, this is, angel, this is Jesus. Another, other people say, no, 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 it's, it's not Jesus. It's just another angel. And their reasoning is this. That word another is the Greek word allos. And it means another numerically, but of the same kind. In other words, it's another angel of the same kind, same category, same prominence. 
the Greek could have, they could have, uh, John could have used the Greek word heteros, which means another qualitatively. In other words, another different one or a different kind of angel. But instead, John used alos, another numerically but of the same kind. So people say, no, it's not Jesus. And the other arguing, the reasoning for that is they say Jesus is no longer in the role of the mediator because the church is in heaven at this point. In fact, he's the one opening the seals and Jesus is now stepping into the role of the judge. Now, whether you say, well, it is Jesus or it's not Jesus, who this angel is, is not as important as what he's doing. You know, in the Old Testament, for example, in the Day of Atonement, it's described in Leviticus chapter 16, priests would take burning coals from the brazen altar of burnt offerings. They would place the coals into a censer. And by the way, you know, when we look at everything related to the temple in the Old Testament, I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel and go to Jerusalem, visit the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is a group of, of Jewish men that are, are preparing for the third, ta- uh, third temple. And they've got all the, the they've, they've gone into the Old Testament and they've scoured it and they've, they've examined all the different, the, the descriptions of the temple and the, the articles used in the temple and the priest clothing. And they've tried to, they're getting ready for temple sacrifices again. And so they've been, they've, they've, everything that they have there is as close to what is in scriptures, in Old Testament scriptures as possible. But listen, even if they got as, as accurate as possible to the Old Testament specifications, it's, what they have is still a copy of a copy. Because we're told that all those things in the Old Testament was only a copy of what's taking place in heaven. So in other words... What John is seeing is the original. That's what the copies are made of on earth. So John sees this, uh, this angel doing these things. And in the Old Testament, like I said, the priest would take the burning coals of the altar, burnt offerings. He'd place the coals into a censer. And then he would add that uh, holy incense to the censer, uh, to the coals on the censer, and then he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would place the fire with the incense upon the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies and there would smoke and the smoke would fill the tabernacle uh, or the temple, depending on what time frame we're talking. And the smoke from that incense, it was symbolic of the prayers rising up to heaven. Now what's kind of interesting that golden censer, that word censer in the Hebrew, it comes from the word frankincense. Frankincense was the main ingredient of the sacred incense used for the altar of incense. It was a sacred ingredient, the, 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 the uh, sacred incense. In fact, in the Old Testament, Moses was told, if anyone tries to duplicate that recipe, there it's a, it's a death penalty, basically. Frankincense is also one of the gifts, and we know this from the Christmas story, is one of the gifts the wise men presented to Jesus in Matthew 2, verse 11. Remember, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Each one of those gifts was pregnant with meaning and symbolism of Jesus' role as Savior and Lord. And so like this frankincense that's burned upon the altar, Jesus' sacrificial death, it's like a sweet-smelling aroma before the Father. And notice there in verse 3, it says the angel is given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. See, those prayers, they're made acceptable 
by the fragrant incense, by Christ's sacrifice. It's his sacrifice that makes your and my prayers acceptable to the Father. In fact, I think that is why we pray in Jesus' name. It's when we pray in Jesus' name, that's what makes our prayers acceptable to God on the throne. You know, the God of this present world, I'm speaking of, of Satan, of course, the God of this present world, right? He's blinded the eyes of people on earth. And, and he has no problems with religions coming together to pray for world peace or, you know, whatever they want to pray for. In fact, these military chaplains, our, our chaplains in the U.S. military, you know, they've had this big issue, right? Uh, you can pray however you want to pray as long as you don't invoke the name of Jesus, as long as you don't invoke his name. And you can pray all you want, but it's not going to ascend to the Father unless you're praying in the name of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we just put a little tagline, you know, not like abracadabra or something, or just, you know, it's like we just got to say Jesus and then it's acceptable. No, when you're praying in Jesus' name, you're praying in the nature and character of Jesus and for his sake. And that's what makes it acceptable to God because he sees Jesus' sacrifice. So we get to verse 5. It says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So you think about all the prayers from all the saints. In chapter 6, we saw the prayers of the tribulation saints under the altar. The prayers of all the saints down through the ages. In fact, any time that you or I have prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Any time you and I have prayed and, you know, we've had the death of, of deaths of loved ones or, or we've seen the wickedness that's going on in the world around us. I mean, we just had that tragic shooting this past week. And we, we, we cry out and go, Lord, how long... How long are you going to allow evil to, 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 to reign? How long, Lord? And some of us are grieving with the flesh that's, that's you know, we struggle with our flesh or, or we're dealing with physical infirmities. Like, how long, Lord? When will you return? When will this be made right? Well, all those prayers, they're going to go answered here. They're going to get answered here. See, we see the heart of God also in these verses. He's not going to allow the prayers of his saints to go unanswered. He is faithful to respond to the prayers of his saints. Maybe you've been praying for something. It's like, the Lord hasn't answered my prayer. He will answer it in his time. He will answer it. It's not like it's not going to go anywhere. They're collected up. God will answer. We see that here. So the intercessory prayers of all the saints all down through the ages, they're being answered here with the holy fire of God's judgment. And remember that eerie silence back in chapter 4, right? Uh, I think it was, no, it was actually, I think it was chapter 7. Nope, take it back, chapter 6. That, remember that eerie silence on the earth when those four angels were holding back the wind on a global scale. There was no wind and when we think there's no wind, there was no clouds, no rain, probably intense heat, undoubtedly intense smog in, in the cities. There's no clouds, there's nothing but stagnant air and eerie silence on earth. There's this silence in heaven, 
And now all of a sudden in heaven, there's this noise. And on earth, there's thunderings and lightnings. Again, without rain though, and an earthquake. You see, the burning coals of judgment are being cast down to the earth in the form of these successive trumpet blasts. And so we get verse 6. It says, so these seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Hail and fire mingled with blood. It's like, what? That can't be literal, can it? It's got to be symbolic. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you do, most of you do, turn to Exodus chapter 9. It's in, towards the beginning of the book. It's, it's right after the book of Genesis. Exodus chapter 9, verses 22 through 25. This is when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. The Lord God had raised up Moses to be their deliverer. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 22, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, on every herb of the field, throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with hail, with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck uh, every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Now let me ask you this. Was that literal or symbolic, that plague in Egypt? It was literal. <coughs> So is this, this judgment here literal or symbolic? It's literal. Now you say, well, how could the, what do you mean by the hail mingled with blood? Well, I don't know, but it could very well be the bloodshed of man and animals as they're being struck by the hail. It's, I, I'm not sure. But what about the result? What was the result of this judgment? It says the third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Now think about that environmental impact if nothing else of of the trees and the green grasses being burned up and destroyed think of the impact to livestock that survived the hill if any did um they've got no grass to graze so you think of that the impact on the earth at this point that's just one trumpet verse eight then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Notice that John says something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. You know, throughout the book of Revelation, John usually says, I saw this, or I saw that. But there's times where he cannot adequately describe what he is seeing. Maybe he's never seen it before, or he just doesn't know exactly what it is. And then he gives it the best description he can. He says, it's like this. And this is what he's saying here. This, this something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Now, some people have said, maybe that's an asteroid or a meteorite or something like that. It, it could be, but we don't really know, right? I want to give you my opinion, which doesn't amount to a whole lot, but uh, there's a star described in verse 10. 
And John knows that it's a star. He says it's something like a star. He says, no, a star fell from, from, from the sky and landed. So I, I'm thinking it, it's something else. Some people say maybe it's a nuclear explosion. Well, could be too. But listen, God doesn't need man's technology. Sometimes it kind of, I chuckle sometimes when people go through the, the miracles in the Bible or the, the things that take place and, and they try to fit it into some kind of natural explanation. Well, it's, you know, it's man's technology or whatever. I love Hal Lindsey. I mean, I, I really, do you remember the late great planet Earth? That was a great book, right? And I think he did an awesome job with it. Um, one of the things, and I, at the time he's like, wow, you know, he's talking about the locusts. That they looked, that basically John didn't know what they were, but they were actually helicopters, you know. And it's like, well, now nah, we'll we'll get to that when we get to that chapter. But actually, cha- next chapter, chapter nine. So you know, God doesn't need man's technology to accomplish anything. Some people say, well, maybe this was a super volcano. I'm not sure. What we do know is that whatever it was, it was thrown into the sea. So it does, in fact, sound like something entering the atmosphere and landing in the sea. But again, we don't know what it is. But what's the results of it? A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, when he says the sea, what sea is he speaking about? There's a, kind of, there's a bunch of seas out there. Well, the only one John and his readers would be familiar with is the Mediterranean. I'm not saying that's what it is. But that's the only one they would be familiar with. So it could be the Mediterranean Sea that he's speaking of. Well, how would the ships be destroyed? Well, if it is, in fact, an impact from something out of our atmosphere coming in, it could have caused tremendous tidal waves and wiped out. I mean, we don't really know, right? But think again about the impact on the world. The food harvested from the ocean, right? The fishing, commercial fishing, gone in that portion, that third of the, that third of the sea. World trade will be impacted. This is fascinating. In my research, I came across this. It says the demand for global trade is driving huge growth in ship traffic in the world's oceans with four times as many ships at sea now in 1992. There's been a 300% increase in shipping because of global trade, basically, that's going on. Those, the, what you're seeing there, the dark is the continents, and the red lines is basically the, the, ship, the shipping lanes, basically. And there's been such a tremendous increase uh, since 1992. 71% of the Earth's surface is water. And scientists tell us that 50 to 85% of the Earth's oxygen comes from the sea, from these tiny sea organisms called phytoplankton. The rest of the Earth's oxygen comes from trees, shrubs, grasses, and other plants. But back at that other play or that other judgment, a third of those were burned up with the first trumpet. And so when I started doing a little bit of math and thinking, well, okay, let's let's do a little calculations, it's quite possibly could be that the global oxygen levels will be decreased by a third. Could quite possibly be. You think about that. A third of the oxygen gone. Not only that, but phytoplankton, it's either on the bottom or close to the bottom of the food chain. So you have the green grasses destroyed, so you have livestock is affected by that. But now the bottom of the food chain is disrupted, and it's going to trickle upwards further up the food chain. So this is a major impact on a global scale. The sea becoming blood? That's 
bizarre. Serious? Literally? Listen, some people that take this and go, well, it's got to be symbolic. They say this. The mountain that's being described, it's human government. They say the sea, well, it's the Roman Empire. And the ships are organized religion. Now, how they got that, I have no clue. But listen, the first plague in Egypt, the water was turned to blood. Remember that? The fish that were in the river died, and the river stank. Was that symbolic or literal? It was literal. So why can't it be literal now here, too, in the book of Revelation? Besides, once you start getting into you know, the symbolism, if, if you start trying to make everything an allegory, pretty soon it's like, man, you got to go to, it's like an allegory of an allegory. I mean, pretty soon it's like you don't know what you're thinking. You could say anything at that point. Verse 8, or excuse me, verse 10. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. You know, it's interesting. This star has a name. In Psalm 147:4, we're told he counts the numbers of the stars. He calls them all by name. And scientists have said, you know, how many stars are there out in, in, in the universe? And God, of course, he created all of them, but he knows them by name. Well, this star's name is Wormwood. And in the Old Testament, that's a very familiar word. It means poisonous bitterness. And in the Old Testament, it's always associated with God's judgment. And because of this, it says, uh, you recall in this other plague or this other judgment, a third of the sea was destroyed with that second trumpet. Now a third of the planet's fresh water is contaminated, it's undrinkable. Water already is a precious and endangered commodity through the world, even today. I mean, we take for granted, right? You go to your spigot and you turn on the water, you're going to get nice clean drinking water. A bunch of the world doesn't have that luxury. Water is scarce in, in many parts of the world. And think about this. Now there's going to be a third less on a global scale. Verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A, thor- a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. The ninth plague in Egypt, if you recall that plague, there was darkness over the entire land of Egypt except Goshen, where the children of Israel were living. Think about this. Earlier, there was no wind, no rain, probably intense heat. Now there's still no rain except for this lethal hail, but now a third of the sunshine's gone. The temperatures of God have just plummeted. So now they've got this incredible global cooling going on. How is that going to impact impact crops? Photosynthesis. I mean, think of the impact of these things. You know, back in verse 1, we saw God's patience. We've seen his heart. You know, he doesn't take pleasure in in afflicting and in in condemning and judging the world and wicked mankind. He's reluctant to do it. Because he sent his son, Jesus Christ. God sent his son to die for the sins of the entire world. So we saw God's reluctance to judge. In verses 2 through 5, we see God's 
faithfulness to answer the prayers of all the saints down through the age, uh, down through the ages, excuse me. Now in verses 6 through 12, what we've seen here is God's restraint in action. Listen, God is the sustainer of life. He holds our breaths in his hands. Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus said this, He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know, you don't go driving down through the country and you see only the, the Christian farms get rain and they've got crops and, you know, the sun's shining on the, on the Christian farms. You know, it's like a patchwork. No, no, no. God sends his rain and he sends the sunshine on the wicked and the, and the good. In Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. God in his grace and his mercy, he doesn't sort out between the, the wicked and, 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 and the righteous. He blesses them all. We we've all have what's called common grace. We all have air to breathe. We all have water to drink. We're all, we're all blessed in so many ways. In Acts chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, Paul's speaking to this, to, to the men. I think it's in Ephesus. And he says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. And then verse 17, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. He always had a witness. His witness is the, his goodness to creation, to mankind. You know, scientists tell us that the earth's been struck by meteors in the past. They have different places where they have craters, right? They have evidence of, of the earth being impacted by some kind of meteors, in the past, but look at our moon or other planets, for example. They're cratered all over. I mean, that's why we always say the moon's made of Swiss cheese, you know? I mean, it's just, it's got, it's, you just see that. God in his goodness, he created earth with an atmosphere that burns most of the smaller, at least, uh, meteors and things that are, enter into the atmosphere, they're burned up before they even strike the earth. God has blessed his creation. You know, we take water, oxygen, warmth, and light from the sun. We take all those things for granted. But you see, there's a purpose in God blessing and sustaining the world. Romans 2 verse 4. Paul says this, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of of the Lord, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. See, God's, God's wanting the world to repent. And man in his rebellion against God, man thinks sin and wicked is pleasurable. And so he's going to let them smell what he smells, or the corruption, the stench of physical corruption, and the dead animals and dead seas. Can you imagine the smell I used to live in 
San Jose, and, and uh, it's a, the south end of the San Francisco Bay, about 50 miles from San Francisco. And uh, there was a little town called Alviso, which is just north uh, of San Jose, and it was right at the tip of the bay. And uh, it's just mud there. And it stinks. You always go, oh, you can tell when you're in Alviso because it just, the stench, it's like, oof. Uh, but that's going to be like, this is like on a, on a global scale, the stench of corruption. But you see, that's what the Lord sees when he sees, that's how the Lord views sin and corruption. It stinks. It's a stench in his nostrils. And mankind loves wallowing in our wickedness and stuff. And so God's going to let them, the mankind that's on earth at this time, he's going to allow them to smell what he smells, dead animals, dead sea. You know, man doesn't want to walk in the light of truth. We have the truth of the scriptures. We have, man doesn't want to want the truth. So he's going to give them a taste of darkness. Man doesn't want to drink freely of the water of life. So he's going to give them what they want, polluted water that they desire. And yet, in all this judgment arising from these four trumpet blasts, we see the heart of God still in this. God is restraining his hand. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. Think about it. He could have just wiped out the entire planet. Instead, only a third is destroyed at this point. Not only that, but these four trumpet blasts that we've looked at this morning, they directly impact creation and they only indirectly impact man. When we get to chapter 9... It's going to be the other way around. Those trumpet blasts, the judgments from those are going to directly impact man himself. Why is God restraining himself? Because even at this point, he's not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. And only he knows, but maybe there's just someone there during that time that's going to finally go, this is God's hand. I've got to repent and turn, to my, turn from my sins. Maybe just one person. And God's holding back his complete judgment. You know, when, when we get to chapter 20, that's when we speak about the, the throne, the great white throne judgment, when all the wicked from all the ages are going to stand before God to be judged. Nobody's going to say, God, you're unfair. I, I've been I've been framed or anything like that. It's it's this isn't right. This is I've been unjustly treated, because God's given mankind every possible. He's made it so hard for people to go to hell. He's made it so difficult, and yet man he'll allow man to reject him, reject him, reject him, and and man sends himself to hell. God doesn't send him. So at this point he's not willing that any should perish but that all come to repentance. But we get to verse 13. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. See, like I said earlier, these four trumpets, these judgments, they afflicted the earth, physically the earth. But the last three trumpets, the judgment of that is going to be man is going to be afflicted himself. I want to paraphrase verse 13. Basically, if you think chapter 8 was bad, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Sorry, I used to like that song. Um, 
<laughs> but that's really, that's what's taking place here. Because when we get to chapter 9, which we're not going to look at this morning, chapter 9 is literally going to be hell on earth. So as we've looked at chapter 8, Luke, you guys can come on up, worship team. Um, as we've looked at chapter 8, we've seen God, he's reluctant to judge. He gives you and I every opportunity to repent of our sins, to turn to him. But there is coming, you know, he's, he's, he's a just God. And he's righteous and he has to judge. Otherwise he wouldn't be righteous. But the, the beautiful thing is that God has provided his son to be the judgment for us. Jesus took our sins on him and died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for us. That judgment that we righteously deserved, it was poured out on Christ on the cross. And so you and I, we've been forgiven of our sins. We, we, we need to turn to him and repent of our sins. Repent, repenting is basically a turning from your sins, having a change of heart and a, and a change in direction. And then, of course, we believe that Jesus died on the cross and three days later he rose again from the dead. And now he offers forgiveness and he offers to come into the life of anybody that will turn to him and invite him into their hearts to be his Lord and Savior. Now, this is a very heavy chapter. That's the heavy stuff, but again, go back to the structure. Chapters 4 and 5, the church is in heaven. You and I don't have to go through this. But there are people that you and I probably love dearly. And when the rapture occurs, the good news is, if you can call it good news, but I think it's good news, there's going to be a multitude of, of people coming to faith in Christ Jesus during the tribulation. There's many people, but, but they're going to be martyred for their faith. And life is going to be literally hell on earth for them. So there is some consolation in that. But for you and I, we've been, we've been promised to be taken from out of this world, out of this judgment. And so for us, you know, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, you won't have to endure this. But I want to encourage you, the Lord Jesus is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And I just encourage you, maybe, maybe you're even listening to this on the Internet or something. We have people that listen to the teachings on the Internet. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, man, he loves you. And, and he's pouring out his heart to you. And we see, his, we see the heart, the loving heart of the Father in this chapter. And, and we're just foolish to, to reject it and to turn away from it. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that as believers, Lord, we won't have to endure this, Lord God. But Lord, we, we do pray for all those that have maybe have not yet bent the knee and confess that you're the Savior and Lord, and they've never turned their lives to you. Lord, we pray for those, Lord, and Lord, we just we ask that, Lord God, while we are here, that, Lord, we would have your heart. Lord, that our heart would be breaking for the lost in this world. And that, Lord, we would do everything that, that, that we can to, to be a witness and be a light in this darkness around us, Lord God. Help us to walk righteously and faithfully 
Lord, for you in this in this present age, Lord. It's so difficult, Lord. We have so many things coming against us, Lord. And not only that, but we have our own flesh fighting against us. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would be filled with your spirit and walking according to your word and according, uh, walking by your spirit, Lord God. And so I thank you for your word this morning. We pray your blessing up upon this teaching, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.